Amen. That will be glory for us indeed. Good to be sharing God's word with you again. And good to see some of you that I haven't seen for a few weeks that have been away on uh, holidays or, uh, or time away with the family and friends. Good to see you back. And as we start to settle back into a, a new year, um, looking forward to what God has for us. But for today, God has a message for us, which will be a continuation of last week's message. And I'm going to have you uh, turn again to the passage that we read uh, for our Bible reading, which is sec- the Second John, which Isaac did an absolutely wonderful job with this morning. Second John, chapter 1, and we'll read verses, well, it's only one, one chapter here, but we'll read verses 1 to 6 this morning. 2 John, verses 1 to 6. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. And not only, but also all they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us, and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth, as we have received the commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as ye have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to him. Father in heaven, once again we come before your your awesome throne. Father, we thank you for um, the freedom that we have to meet in this way, that we can focus on your word. But Father, I pray that our hearts would be focused on you now, that our thoughts would be uh, focused and centred on the things um, that you want us to know today. And Father, I pray that you would uh, hold back the evil one, that you would bind him, that he might not disrupt, that he would not take away the seeds that are sown today. But Father, I pray that uh, as your word goes forth, that our hearts would be ready to receive it and that the seed would actually grow fruit. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the spirit that you've given us today who leads us into all truth I pray that you would hide me behind that cross that our, Saviour, that our Saviour died on, Lord, that he might be glorified and not anyone else. I pray this in his precious name. Amen. I'm not sure if any of you have been involved in the mining industry. I know David has some, uh, some experience in that area. David is a... Uh, uh, an engineer, a uh, chem- chemical engineer, so he helps uh, mining companies to um, separate different things they need to separate. But mines generally mean that you dig deep down into the earth, and if you go back a number of years, the ventilation system um, in those sort of places when you were, when you were working in very confined uh, places like that, that were non-existent go back 100 years and uh, there was no ventilation system. So the miners uh, had a system whereby they would, that would notify them if there was a build-up of carbon monoxide or methane, which would kill them. And it was, does anyone know what they would use? Canary, canary. A canary, yes. They'd bring in some singing canaries. And 
the, the Canaries were a, uh, the discerner. The Canaries would notify them um, if there was a build-up uh, of these chemicals to a certain point because the Canary would either stop singing or they'd find it like this. And if they found the bird stopped singing or they found the bird in a, uh, in a difficult position, uh, there was one thing that they knew they had to do. And that was run. <laughs> Get out of there as quickly as they could. Because if the, if the bird was compromised in that way and the bird uh, had died or was, or was struggling, they knew they would be the next one to go. So the bird had an ability to be able to discern better than the miners because the bird had a, a rapid heart rate. The bird breathes very, very fast and its metabolism was very, very high. So it would ingest the, the carbon monoxide or the methane and, and it would affect it very quickly. Okay? And that's why the birds were so good at actually being this, this, um, this sort of uh, alarm system that they would use. Um, the birds became the sentinels of safety. So let's look at this as from a spiritual perspective. Okay? Most people around us in this world are walking around the world and there are toxic levels of sin everywhere we go. And most of the people in the world do not or aren't aware that sin actually kills. Sin destroys. And so they're they don't realise that the sin that they're committing in their own lives and the sin they see around them is actually destroying people from the inside out and that it has eternal consequences. So, unfortunately, we see the majority of the world living in sin, happy to live in sin, but we see them slowly dying, which is the heartbreak for the Christian. Because we know that the levels of sin in this world are sending this world and the majority of people in it to a, a fate far worse than they can ever, ever comprehend or understand. I recently had, uh, I said goodbye to an auntie of mine this week. What breaks my heart is that this auntie of mine, to her deathbed, denied even believing in God. And she had a Catholic funeral and the priest said all the right things. But I know her and her heart. We had witnessed to her a number of times and she refused to even believe that Jesus was who he said he was. So my fear for my auntie is that now she's in a place for the rest of eternity that I am, I am loath to even think about. We have this challenge on our hands. We have this challenge. We're called to be the canaries in this world. We are meant to be those canaries. We're meant to be the ones who have enough sensitivity to this thing called sin, which separates man from God, to warn the people in this world that it's, it's going to not end well. And we need to be brave enough. We need to have the grace. We need to be living lives ourselves which are distinguishable enough to the people around us that they see and they look at us and like the, the, the miners would automatically see from the way the bird reacted to that gas that they'd know something wrong here. We need, our lives need to be that manifest to them, that open to them, that different to them.
Because just as the miners were not aware if the carbon monoxide levels grew too much or if the, the methane levels got to a certain point that it would kill them, they just slowly pass out and they die. The world we live in today is exactly the same to sin and iniquity as those miners are living and working in those mines. If we do not do our job properly, we aren't doing our job and we are not warning people and, and allowing them to go and slip into an eternity um, that we will be shedding tears for and shedding tears about when we stand before God's throne. I've warned us more than once in my sermons that when we stand before God's throne, we will be judged. Make no mistake about that. We will be judged by what we've been given because we will have to give an account of the things we've done with our lives. And, and I'm sad to say that probably the majority of us won't be happy, campers, when we get up there. When we come before God's throne and God shows us our lives and says, look at what I gave you. Look at the grace that I extended to you, but you didn't take it. We will shed tears in heaven because we allowed too many things to slip through. We need to be sensitive to sin. Absolutely sensitive to it. Jesus died for it. God sent his son into the world to save the world from sin. So if we involve ourselves in that, then we are, con we are a contradiction in terms. And God doesn't like hypocrites. He, uh, he told off the Pharisees for, uh, for, for being that way. And we aren't to be that way. Jesus is our example in all things. God sent his son into the world to save the world. He was the canary, in, in essence, that warned the world and said, the world will be judged one day. But I'm here to save the world, to warn you about it, so you have an escape. And he said that he was the escape. And we need to be trumpeting that every day of our lives. And not only that, but our Saviour didn't just come to warn the world, but he exposed himself to the sin that kills all of us as well. Like the, like the canaries who were used for that purpose, he, he allowed himself to bear that sin which kills every man and woman in this world. He allowed himself to be exposed, that he died himself to be that warning for us as well. So God expects his children to be good discerners. We need to be clear with our lives. We need to make good decisions with our lives because the time is short, the days are evil, and we have to, the Bible says, give an account for the time that we've been given. As the children of God, we have an obligation to be good discerners to identify sin, to turn away from it, and to warn other people about it. Okay? Let's recap some of, the, some of the things that we spoke about last week. 
We're looking at discernment again. And discernment or biblical discernment is the ability to think biblically. The ability to think the way God is teaching us and, and speaking to us in the Bible. And it's speaking and understanding from his perspective. The way he sees the world is the correct way, not our way. What we see with our eyes is only a small portion of what's actually happening. You see, there is a spiritual world behind the physical world. And while the world tries to make sense of this, of what's going on around us, purely from a, 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 a physical sense, and they can't make heads or tails of what's going on, we understand and we have more information about what's happening in our world because we have been given this, which explains it to us from a spiritual sense. And we have to be people of faith that see not just with our eyes, because obviously we see with our eyes, but the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. And that faith is faith in his word and faith in him and who he is. We have to live that way. So discernment is the ability to think biblically, to see things from God's perspective. It's the capacity to look at something and to distinguish and separate the evil from the good. The truth from a lie. And to say, I choose the truth. I choose the good. And I will separate myself from the lie, from the evil and from the sin. That's what genuine discernment is and God expects every every child to be like that you see because the world expects all leaders and people in authority to have discernment I mean like I've said last week we expect our leaders to have good discernment to make good decisions about the for the on behalf of the people in our society we expect our church leaders to have good discernment I mean I'm sure you would not be happy if I came up here one week and I was teaching you out of a different religious book would you you would say that is not good discernment on his part. I'm sure you would notice that. God calls us to have good discernment. Otherwise, the Bible says, we ourselves are at risk of being tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Ephesians chapter 4. We need to be aware of what God expects of us, and we need to be exercised enough to be able to discern and notice what's right and what's wrong and to make the choice. Discernment is something fairly uncommon in our society. But we are called to have good discernment. We looked last week at King Solomon's desire to have discernment. When King Solomon was... was uh, installed as the king of Israel, he looked on the multitude of people that he now had responsibility for and he said to God, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge the people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this, thy so great a people? Solomon's desire was to be able to discern between good and bad, right and wrong, because as a king, every decision he made affected everyone else. He realised the responsibility that he had. And as a pastor, the decisions I make affect all of you. So the Bible says that we are accounted a greater judgment than all of you. Because if I teach you and lead you astray in any direction, the error that I make doesn't just apply to me. It's multiplied across all of you. 
and I will be judged more harshly. That's why the Bible says, let not be there too many teachers among you, because they're all going to be judged more harshly. So the challenge which I ask you to, to pose to yourself, the questions I ask you to pose yourself is, am I a good discerner? Am I discerning properly in my life? Are there areas in my life where I have failed to discern? And I'm happy just to go along because it's easier for me not to make a choice or decision in that area or some sort of sin that I've been dragging along with me throughout, throughout uh, the last how many years. And you know something? It's not that big a deal. No one's gonna, not going to worry anyone else. It's there. It's okay. Let me tell you, it's not okay. It's not. You can't keep a viper in your pocket. It will eventually bite you. You can't play with a, a dangerous animal and expect that it will not turn to you one day and tear you apart. And that's exactly what sin is. So the challenge we have for ourselves is as we come into this new year, and Lincoln, thank you for asking, I think it was you that asked a question about what the theme for the, the conference is. I, I know as a pastor that many people struggle with sin. And that's a good thing. Not a good thing from the point of view that we struggle because I want you to thrive. But I understand that the world doesn't struggle with sin. They're swallowing it like as quickly as they eat breakfast in the morning, lunch and dinner. They, they consume sin because all they get is pleasure from it. They don't see the consequence of it. But as Christians, we are to struggle. The Bible says there is a fight that occurs every single day of our lives. That's why we are called to fight the good fight. It's called the good fight, not a bad fight. It's a good fight, but it's a fight nonetheless. And it's a fight that we need God's grace for. And it's the fight to discern. It's the, 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 the struggle, the internal struggle that we have. To put aside the sin, the evil, the untruths, and to say, I stand and choose this way. That's essentially what we did when we got saved. When we got saved, and we were, when we repented, that's the first time we ever did that. Did you know that? The first time we ever looked at it from God's perspective was when we repented and then turned to Christ as our Saviour. Because we looked at ourselves from God's perspective and we said, I'm full of sin. I didn't realise I had so much sin in my life. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. But it was grace my fears relieved. Because God first showed us the amount of sin that was dragging us down to hell. But then God showed us there is a way. There is a way out of that. There is a way to be free from that. And he showed us his son on a cross. And we said, I want him. I don't want that. So I choose to reject that. I choose to reject and I turn to you. I want to see things from your perspective now, God. I accept your son. I believe in what you've done for me. And the rest of our lives then become this separation, this continual separation of sin from good, from truth and lies. We continually are separating things in our lives. It's a bit like when the Bible says that God created light. God saw that light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. He separated God created light. I'll talk to you a bit more about that later on. 
How good a discerner are you today? How does it reflect in your life? And how do other people see that as well? That's our challenge. We looked last week at the miraculous gift of discernment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, it says, To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of some tongues. And we looked at, in the early church, the discerning of spirits was absolutely necessary because in the early church, other people had gifts that were also relying on the Spirit of God to, to speak. And they were prophetic in the way they spoke. They were speaking in different languages, and that's why you had to have interpretation of languages. And there were people doing miracles. But you had to have people in the church that looked at those things and had also an ability to say, uh uh, something wrong with that. That's a different spirit. We don't see the, the gift of discernment of spirits today. We don't have that because we don't have workers of miracles today. We do not have people speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues and all those types of things. We don't have them. They, they had their time just like the apostles. And once the apostles finished, these gifts also finished. So today the miraculous gift of discerning spirits is no longer present, nor is it required. As we have the word of God fully given to us and it's complete, and we have everything we need to live, the Bible says, godly lives. So how do we discern today whether someone is giving a correct prophecy or a message in another tongue? Easy. Someone comes in here and starts prophesying to you. It's easy to discern whether they're, they're, it's coming straight from God or not. It ain't. Because no one has the gift of prophecy. No one has the gift of tongues. And if they're doing it, they're either deceiving themselves or it's something else. In the arena of miraculous gifts given to individuals, the way to discern them is to apply the word of God directly to them. Knowing the word of God and doctrine will help you discern the truth from the lie in the realm of spiritual gifts. Now, the government we um, live under in Australia has... A lot of advice for us. They have a lot of a lot of um, uh, advice to its it gives to its citizens discerning when you travel overseas. The government has a website. Did you know that? That when you travel overseas and you might be travelling to a country that's a little bit dodgy, um, the government has a website that says be careful when you go to this country because it has these particular laws. And as an Australian, you might not be aware of them. Or if you travel to this particular country, be aware uh, when you're travelling by yourself that you may be at risk. So the government gives us advice about how to protect ourselves and make good choices when we travel overseas. The, Bible, the, the government also gives us advice about when we drive a car, the way we were meant to drive it. Because driving a car can cause ourselves and other people damage. So it says when you drive a car, these are the laws we would like you to follow. And we'd like you to drive at this particular speed in these particular ways. We want to make sure that you're fully trained before you get into a car. That's why we have to have licences and probationary periods and learners and all those sorts of things. All those things are advice given by the government so that we go, don't jump into a car and kill someone else, right? When you take medication, the government makes sure that on the medication there are sufficient warnings on there so you don't take much more than what you're supposed to and do yourself in. 
Okay? That's controlled by the government. When you're working in dangerous places, I mean, most of you are aware of occupational health and safety, and the government has a department which takes care of that and makes sure that employers are not putting their employees at unnecessary risk in their lives and that they're trying to control that as much as possible because we do not like to see people being crushed by concrete walls and, and being, um, being killed in one way or the other when they don't have to. Just as the government advises its citizens and wants them to be safe, guess what God does? He does exactly the same. He advises us. We're the citizens of heaven now. And as a citizens of heaven, God has given us the manual, the advice that we need to live godly lives that are safe in him. He does not want us to be involved in situations where we put ourselves and other people at risk. So he says to us, when you live, live this particular way. When you find yourself in this position, this is the way you should react because I want you to be safe. We just celebrate the Lord's table. And one of the advices that God gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28 is, but let a man examine himself. Let a man examine himself and sell let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, God says, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. God doesn't want to judge. you think God wants to judge? He doesn't. God doesn't want to punish. The Bible says that, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. God wants everyone to be saved. Does he know that many won't? Of course he does. But his desire is for all men to be saved. And he's given enough warning to the world which men are supposed to heed, but they don't. The Bible teaches us that when we remember the Lord's table, there are spiritual and physical consequences when we don't do the right thing, when we're not discerning enough. The Corinthians weren't discerning enough. They were remembering the Lord's table, but at the same time, they were so caught up in their own internal conflicts and, and, and sin that they forgot the very reason they were there. And God said, you know, the reason some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you are dead, they're all physical things, aren't they? They're not spiritual, they're safe physical. Some of you are dead because you actually haven't honoured the Lord. You haven't done the right thing. Proper discernment protects an individual from evil consequences and God wants us to be protected from evil consequences and bad results of bad choices. We, my brothers and sisters, have an advantage the world does not have. They may see the physical consequences of physical choices, but they do not see the, the physical consequences of spiritual choices. We do. We've been given the information. And oftentimes the world doesn't know that the physical and the spiritual are intertwined, that one affects the other. We've been given that information, which we desperately need to be living and to be sharing. You know, we expect the parent, through because of their experience and knowledge, okay, to be able to foresee the consequences of making a mistake such as putting your, your, a knife into the electric, uh, into a PowerPoint, 
or putting your hand in a flame. So we expect the parent to do what? To advise and make sure the children don't fall into that area as well. Isn't that true? And God's the same with us. God, who lives in the spiritual, who has much more experience than we, his children. He sees things that we do not see. Has given us the information that says, you know, don't put that knife in that thing. Don't put your hand in that flame. Don't put your hand in the, the, the jam of the door of your car when you're closing it. Why do you think God gives us laws? Do you think God gives us laws to weigh us down? He gives us laws because he doesn't want us to kill ourselves. He loves us too much. Now think about the type of concern you would have for your own child if you saw them going to put their hands on a flame. Wouldn't you, want, wouldn't you have the concern for them that you would say, hey, stop. Well, God has done exactly the same for us. He's given us a detailed guide over here that we can follow to understand the spiritual choices that we make, the physical choices that we make, are going to affect us and the people around us in some way or another. And on top of that, he's given us the Holy Spirit to teach us and lead us into all that truth. Our level of discernment should be, as a matter of course, entirely different, at an entirely different level to the rest of the world because our choices should be different. Our lives should look discernibly different because we discern differently. Our decisions touch the people around us. They reach the people around us. They're watching us. Our discernment is paramount in this world because our lifestyle affects their view of God. And you know something? In many cases, they don't like what we do. What we say, they may not agree with. In fact, many times they won't agree with it. But that's okay. That's all right. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The Bible, tell, the Bible tells us that the world is going to be able to see us differently or there's something different about us. Because in John chapter 13, verse 35, he says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Now, hang on a sec. But doesn't everyone love each other anyway? How is that going to distinguish us from everyone else in the world? How is that, if Jesus is saying the truth, how is that type of love going to distinguish us from everyone else? How are they going to know that we're different? Well, the world has much to say before we read this passage about love. Plenty to say. Poets have spoken about love throughout the ages. Philosophers have philosophized about it. Um, the, the governments try to define it. Um, but what's passed off as love and what Hollywood wants to tell us about love is often simply lust. Well, the world might have a basic concept of love, for example, the love between brothers or the love between a, in a family or between friends. It cannot possibly grasp the love that God is talking about. It cannot. It cannot possibly understand the type of love God is talking about and the type of love that he displays and he has demonstrated to mankind. And this is the type of love that he expects us to show to each other. So, the first thing we're going to check out, we're going to discern and test, using God's word, is what is love? 
What is love and how do I discern real love from false love? Most people in this world have a view of love that is not compatible with the Bible. Let's see what the Bible says about love and let's see if we can come up with some sort of a conclusion about it and see if it matches what the world says. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. It says, Charity, which is love, which is actually a, a sacrificial giving type of love, says, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. Is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Now, that definition may simply roll off the tongue fairly quickly, and that, that definition there is often used in um, weddings, wedding ceremonies as an example of love. And we've probably read that so many times that we probably don't understand the depth of it. When you want to identify whether something is real love or not, it must have these elements in it. These are the elements that it needs that, that will be displayed in, this, in real love. Does the behaviour, first of all, demonstrate perfect patience? That's what suffering long means. Does it demonstrate perfect patience and kindness? Is there any hint of envy toward the other person? Is there a hint of envy? Self-promotion? Is there pride in there somewhere at all when someone's dealing with someone else? Is there any type of bad behaviour? Is there any selfishness? Is there any quickness to anger? Is there any evil intention toward the other person? Or happiness when sin or iniquities committed. If it doesn't have those elements, it's not real love. It doesn't match up to what God's definition of love is. In addition to these, true love rejoices when the truth is upheld and defended. It rejoices when truth is upheld and defended. That's what real love does. It is able to bear an incredible amount it's able to take on its shoulders an incredible amount to reach its goal. It believes that all things are possible with God. It has an amazing sense of hope that the world doesn't normally display. And it's able to endure all things because, because the grace of God gives it resilience. The world's understanding of love doesn't match up very well with this, this definition here. In fact, it doesn't, doesn't, define, doesn't match up with it almost at all. When you look at it, verse 5 becomes a, a significant problem for most people who, who define love a different way. Verse 6 would definitely be a, a problem because people have abandoned the, the idea of truth in this world. When you don't have truth, spiritual, moral, ethical truth as a standard, how do you defend it? You can't. How does love stand for truth? It can't. Because according to the world, it's all relative. What I say is true spiritually and morally can be different to what you say is true spiritually and morally. And it doesn't matter, the world says. So if they've attacked the truth, how can love stand with the truth if it's different for everyone? The truth is that it isn't. The truth is that there is a... The truth is that there is truth.
Most married couples today haven't lived verse 7, haven't, aren't able to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things and endure all things because more than half of the marriages that take place in the world finish. There's at least one person in that, in that, uh, in that thing that doesn't see it that way. That true love bears those things. It hopes for the other person. It believes that things can be made better. In addition to this standard here that God gives us about love, one of the clearest illustrations of love is the fact that God sent his son into the world to die on a cross. And while he is being murdered by the people he came to save, he, he uttered words that to the, the common man and with common understanding don't make any sense. So while they are killing him, he's saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Now tell me what type of love that is. Where the people who absolutely hate you have tortured you and are in the process of killing you, you say, I want, God, I want you to take this off of their account. I don't want you to hold this to their account. That's a type of love the world does not understand. It's ignorant, this type of love. And we struggle ourselves to comprehend it. I'll tell you now, as much as I believe I understand what love is, I struggle to understand it. I cannot see the height. It's a bit like trying to see the top of Mount Everest. It's difficult to see there. It's difficult if there's clouds and things. It's too, my vision doesn't take me that far. God doesn't give me that, that depth or that field of vision yet. But I hope that God gives me better and better vision because I need more and more of his light. But if we struggle to comprehend God's love, what hope does the world have of understanding that love? They don't. So the Bible says here that the love rejoices with the truth. Now, what does love have to do with truth? Turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 with me. Love rejoices in the truth. It says, and this I pray. Paul says here, and this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve those things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offence to the day of Christ. You see the definition? Paul wants our love to be more and more within knowledge, God's knowledge. And then he wants us to be able to apply judgment using that knowledge as to whether something is genuine or whether it's not. And he wants us to be able to approve, to tick off and say, yes, that's God's definition. That matches with what God wants. And that is the truth. He wants us to approve those things that are excellent. Love without knowledge and judgment leads to a corruption of the truth and a perversion of life. And we have seen this in ever-increasing number of ways in our society year on year. 
Let me give you some examples. The desire to protect a woman's choice over her body. Would you say it's a good, a good, uh, a good thing to do? That you have the ability to be able to choose what happens to your body? Yes, I would say it's true. So the, the, the government and, and people have good intentions. They want a woman to be able to choose what's, what happens to her body. It's not right to force someone against their will, is it? But that desire to protect a woman has led to the death of millions and millions and millions of unborn babies in this world. How does that, how does one outweigh the other one? What's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with it is that God says that he formed us in the womb. And the Bible tells us very clearly that he knew us, he knew us as people before we were actually born. The Bible teaches very clearly that the fetus is a human being before it enters into the world. It's a human being already. It doesn't matter how many weeks or whatever it is in God's eyes, it's already there. I know the world argues about um, how many weeks and how many heartbeats and all that sort of stuff. You know something? According to God, it was as soon as conception takes place, it's a human according to God's. It has everything, every element that we have. The DNA is exactly the same. It has all those things. Its own personality, in a sense, is known by God before it's developed. So according to God's word, the life of a human takes precedence over the lifestyle, cho lifestyle choices of someone, doesn't it? I think it does. Male or female. And according to God, love should extend to within the womb. The womb should be a safe place for a growing baby. But our world sees it differently. But do you see where, according to the world... The love that they're showing, that they're trying to show, actually does one thing and destroys something else. The desire to justify the love between two people of the same sex has caused the world to redefine this thing we call marriage from what it was from the very beginning to something totally alien now. But it's God who actually defined marriage in the first place. It's God who brought those two people together in the first place. It's God who defines what it is. It has been defined in a way that has spread across every culture in the world in the same possible way from the beginning of time till now. Every culture over all ages have always defined marriage in a particular way. It's our culture now in the last 50 years or so that wants to define it in a different way. Why? Because they're desiring to do something good. They want to do something good. But desiring to do something good needs to be based in truth. Because love without truth is not love at all, according to God. And this is what's happening in our culture today. 
Yeah, there's a desire to have a free society. And aren't you glad you live in a free society? I am. Has led, though, to every perversion, error and sin being promoted in art, literature and entertainment. Every perversion. You see, the things we put up today with, I'll guarantee you, if you, if you move the dial back 30 years or so, I would just say 30 years, right? You move the doll back and you put on TV what we see and you put on a billboard what we have on billboards and you put on, on media or the internet and show that to a person from 30 years ago, they would be absolutely horrified. Yet we aren't. So what does it say? It says that we are slowly being conditioned. It says we're slowly, slowly being pushed in a particular direction and like the water's being, you know what, you put a frog, you, most of you know this illustration, throw a frog in hot water and it will try to jump out immediately. Put a frog in cool water and turn up the heat slowly and the frog will not move until it's fully cooked, when it's too late. That's where our society is at the moment. And the temperature is quite high. We have a free society, but we have things that have taken place in, our, in, in, in the name of freedom, such as the, the sexual revolution of the 60s. We see the sexualization of children. We see attacks on the traditional family. We see the exaltation of self. In other words, I'm the most important person in the world. We see a rampant individualism that actually goes against or we see the opposite spectrum, communism and those sorts of things, which have denied the very existence of God and have said, that, have said the state is the most important God that you are to worship with your life. Are they trying to do good? In most cases, they are. In most cases, and I'll say, I'll say this very loosely, but in most cases, they are trying to do something good. In their minds, they are convinced that if they do this thing or that thing, that they're actually doing good for other people and they're showing some type of love. But the Bible says that in their demonstration of this love, they don't have any discernment. So love becomes something totally different. It's not love according to God's standard because love without truth and knowledge is not love at all. It destroys a person. Let me give you an example of what's happened recently. In California, they recently passed... Uh, a, a law making it legal for underage children to prostitute themselves. That sounds absolutely weird, doesn't it? Legal. In other words, they will not be, they will not be sentenced to any jail time or they will not have a conviction against them if they're underage children who have, who have become prostitutes. You might say, that does not make any sense at all. Why would you do that? Let me tell you why they did it. Because they had good intentions. They knew that a number of children in California are being prostituted and being forced into prostitution by other evil people, older people, who were using them to make money off them. So they said within their wisdom that if we, if we convict these children and they have a criminal record against them, we are doing what? We're punishing the... Victim. That's the argument. We're going to punish the victim. It's not fair. 
for them to have a criminal record, is it? Think about that. There's a logic to it. But now think of the consequences. Think of the consequences. Those people who are exploiting those children are going to more easily round them up now because they're going to say, it's not, it's not going to affect you now. You don't have to worry about anything. You won't get put in jail. You won't have any criminal record next to your name. So the thing that may have held them back from going into there and resisting because they knew it was against the law is now fully open to them. And in fact, other ones who don't, who may be thinking about it because they may be, their, their parents don't have money and, they, and they, they, they're thinking about maybe making some money, will now consider doing it because they know it's not a criminal act. Tell me, is it love or not? According to the Bible, it doesn't matter how loving or kind an act or word may seem. If it violates true knowledge and judgment, it does not count for love. Much of the world teaches us today that if it makes you happy, then do it. Does it not? And we shouldn't stop other people from being happy. And if people really love you, then they'll want you to be happy. But let me ask you a question. For those of you who have been involved and know about people taking drugs, do drugs bring people happiness? They do. Otherwise, I wouldn't take them. Getting high from drugs is a nice feeling. It makes you happy. It takes away all the headaches that you have, all the stresses. Taking drugs make people happy. Well, they're happy for a while. So is genuine love going to want them to be happy? All the while knowing that it's destroying their own lives? No. People would say, if you allowed your children, encourage your children to take drugs because they were getting high and feeling good about themselves, they would say that that parent is irresponsible and ignorant because that's not love. True? So what about sin? Sin brings, the Bible says, pleasure for a season. It brings pleasure for a season. You know something? People would not sin if it didn't bring them pleasure. It does. It makes you feel good to gossip. It makes you feel good to, to, do, to do all these other things that the Bible says to beware of. If it wasn't that way, then people would not do them. But what about sin? Yeah. The Bible warns us continually about sin and Jesus preaches probably more about hell than almost anything else that he, pre that he preaches about. About hell. You know why? He doesn't want anyone to go there. So he warns about sin and he warns about hell and the consequences of sin. And it's just like a parent who is telling their, ch their child who has started taking drugs, don't do it. Don't do it because that when you become addicted, you won't be able to get off it and it's going to eventually kill you. Do you understand the, the, how they go hand in hand? So real love can only, can only be manifest with truth, 
without truth, real love, or I mean love, as the world sees it, is absolutely destructive. They might think they're helping one thing, but they are destroying something else. And God pleads with us all the while because he knows the consequence of sin. He sees it. We don't. He sees the consequence from his perspective and he says, don't do it. So God wants us to approve the things that are excellent in Philippians chapter 1, verse 10, that you may be sincere and without offence till the day of Christ. And how, how do we approve those things that are excellent? Well, to approve something, you must first evaluate it from a spiritual basis, what includes moral assessments, what compass can I use to determine that truth? Well, the Bible gives us the word of God. God has given us his word to be that compass for us, to point us in the direction that it's either wrong or right. If you believe the philosophy of the world, it's all relative. It depends on your upbringing, your own personal experience, your own judgment. Thus, one person can't really evaluate truth and say this is right and this is wrong. But there is a standard. There is a standard. And God says he is the standard. And he gave us the standard. But our society tells us something different. Our society says you can't have perfect truth. That's impossible. You can't have it. It's the society that has to determine the truth. Is that correct? It's our society that has to determine it. Determine what's right and what's wrong. What's sin and what's good. We'll tell that to the Jews during the Second World War who found themselves in concentration camps simply for being Jews. Tell that to the six million people who gave up their lives because the society they lived in deemed them a threat and decided it was better to get rid of them than to leave them alive. Explain it to the millions who were killed under Stalin's rule. More than 20 million, I think, were killed when Stalin said communism is the, uh, the way to go and anyone who dissents is going to be sent to a gulag and 20 million or more died because the society chose what was right and what was wrong. Tell those of the people who are living under territory claimed by ISIS now, who have no freedom, who can't live the way they want, they can't, they can't actually follow God the way they, they, they have followed maybe for uh, I don't know how long. Tell it to the gays who are being thrown off buildings. Tell it to the people who are having their heads chopped off. That's society. They've created their own society there. So let me ask you a question. Is the society we live in the one we trust to determine what's right and what's wrong? No. Because truth and morals and values in society change from year to year. What was right for us 20 years ago Today is accepted, as I've told you already. Was it not wrong 20 years ago? Was it wrong 20 years ago and then right now? How can we approve things that are excellent? By applying the principles, the precepts, the laws, the standards found in the word of God to every part of our lives. We may not change the society we live in, but we can change ourselves. We can apply those to ourselves and then we become the lights. 
It's, it's only when I am saved and when I'm in a right relationship with God and I've been given the Holy Spirit and properly know the word of God, then I can begin to apply those truths to things that I have in my life and the things I see in my life and I can be an influence on other people. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Bible tells us in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 12 now we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit which is of God that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth but which the Holy Ghost teacheth comparing spiritual things with spiritual but the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness unto him Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, the Bible teaches us that the natural man can't receive the things of God. They're foolishness. And most of the world will look at us and say, you guys are absolutely foolish. You're stupid. You're not with the times. And we're here saying, hang on a sec, but the Bible says, and they say, what are you talking about the Bible? The times have moved on. We're now smarter than we were 20 years ago or 100 years ago or 200 years ago and we say but hang on a sec the standard is always the same because God gave it to us no 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 God doesn't give us any standards in order to receive these truths and to discern those things that are excellent you can't be a natural person you have to be an unnatural person an unnatural one someone who's actually received the spirit of God so 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21 says, Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from every appearance of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 Prove all things. Hold fast to the good and abstain from even the appearance of anything evil. That's the way we are to live our lives. It covers everything. It covers everything I say, everything I do. And God expects us to be this way every single day of our lives. We are to hold fast, which means hold very tightly to that which is good and abstain from the appearance of that which is evil. Run to the good and run away from that which is evil. See, God wants us to continually be separating the truth from a lie, sin from righteousness in our lives. God, as God divided the light from the darkness, God wants us to divide light from darkness in our own lives. And you know what, why it has to be in our lives? Because there is still darkness in our lives. Even though God has given us a new nature, we still have the old nature floating around. It is darkness. It needs to be separated, continually be separated from. God wants to separate the light from the darkness. That's why the Bible says we are called the children of light. The Bible says we are the possessors of light. It says we are believers of light. It says that we are those who have come to the light. It says that we live in the light. It says that we are called the light of the world. It says that we are full of light. It says that we are light on a hill. 
It calls us the saints in light. It calls us light in the Lord. It says that we walk in the light, that we are abiders in the light, and we even put on the armour of light. Is that who we are? The Bible never calls us sinners. Did you know that? Once you'll say, the Bible doesn't call you a sinner. It calls you a conqueror. It calls you a saint of light. It says that we are full of light and not darkness. And this is how we are to live our lives in this world. We are to be the lights in this world. That's why Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You don't put a light under a, under a, a, a blanket or under a, some sort of a basket and hide that light. It says you've got to be put on top of a hill. And like a city on top of a hill, you can see it. So everyone can see it. Our lives are meant to be like that in front of everyone. We should not be ashamed of living the light. Each of us is at a different stage in our spiritual walk. But there is none of us who has an excuse for not spiritually discerning. None of us has that excuse. Because the second, second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, According as his divine power hath given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called you to glory and virtue. Hath God spoken to you today? Has he spoken to your heart? Is there darkness in your life that you need to separate yourself from? What darkness do you have lurking? What corner of your heart do you keep closed? God wants you to open that door to let the light come flooding in, to separate that darkness from his light. If you haven't separated yourself from sin, separate yourself. Separate that thing in your life which you know to be wrong and live in the light. Make that commitment to walk in the light. Don't walk in the darkness. Don't sleep in the darkness because the time is too short. And if you don't possess Jesus Christ in your heart, the Bible says you live in complete darkness. You have no light because he is the light of the world. So it's only when he comes into the heart that he illuminates and he brings that light so we can actually see the true condition of our lives. Do you have Jesus Christ today? Have you seen this light? If you haven't seen this light, it's there. You simply need to open up your eyes and hold fast to it. Please. If the Lord's spoken to your heart today, come to that light. And if you're a Christian, put that darkness away. It doesn't belong in your life. God doesn't say you're a sinner in any stretch of the imagination. And by any means, God says that you are a child of the light. So my prayer for you today is that you will live in complete light. God bless you.